0: We have a good number present this evening, as has already been mentioned. We're delighted that you're here, and hope you've got your Bible and eager to take that and study with us. I encourage you to be turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're in a series that we entitle simply, Saving the Erring, Saving the Church, Saving Our Families, and Saving Ourselves, a Study of Church Discipline. We cannot do a thorough study of that subject in four lessons, but we're going to attempt to key, deal with some key thoughts. And uh, that's what we're trying to accomplish while we're here for these four days. We've already looked at the first two lessons, the forgotten and misunderstood command, and we've also talked about the purpose last evening, the purpose of withdrawing and from whom should we withdraw. Our focal point this evening is to look at the case at Corinth. We're going to start with 1 Corinthians 5. We'll also give attention to 2 Corinthians 2. And before that, we'll give some attention to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Tomorrow evening, we'll bring the series to a close by raising the question of how do we treat those who've been disfellowshipped, and and does it apply to family? And in that, we're going to also talk about, and several of you have already asked this question, what do we do about someone who should have been disciplined, but they wasn't? Uh, They were not disciplined. Maybe the church did not do their job, or maybe where they are members, they did not do their job. And how do I deal with that? We'll talk about some of that, some biblical principles that may relate to that in our study tomorrow evening. So let's talk about the case at Corinth. There are two notable cases of discipline mentioned in the New Testament, the first being 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and the other is the case at Thessalonica in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. We've alluded to 2 Thessalonians 3 already. We're not going to do a thorough study of that chapter. Time would forbid us to do that. But each of these cases gives us an opportunity and an occasion to see what the Lord has revealed, and it gives an opportunity for the Lord to reveal His will, and He did. And it gives us then an opportunity to study that and to reflect upon it that we might see the instructions and learn from it. So let's read the entirety of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, a short chapter, 13 verses. Let's see what the text says. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And such sexual immorality as even, not even named among the Gentiles that man should have his father's wife. And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he that has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed is absent in the body but present in the spirit have already judged as though I were present. Uh, him uh, who has done this deed in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ when you are gathered together along with my spirit with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and uh, wickedness, But with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with sexually immoral people of this world, or with the covetous, uh, or with covetous, or extortioners, or idolaters, since these would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral, or covetous, or an idolater, or a violer or a drunkard, or an extortion, extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside God judges, therefore put away from, from yourselves that evil person. Now that is the entirety of the instructions in the First Corinthian letter concerning this case of discipline that we read about at Corinth. More is going to be said in Second Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Now, we have some ground to cover if we cover this, so let's begin rolling by dealing with the problem that is identified in verse 1. And so I encourage you to get your Bible open. If you don't already have one, maybe there's one in a pew, or get your Bible out out on your phone, and let's follow the text and begin at verse 1. There is a problem here, and the problem is there is a fornicator in their midst. Look at verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man should have his father's wife. The text says this is well reported. The King James says that it is commonly reported. The uh, New King James, American Standard, would translate that actually reported. Strong says that that means completely or altogether, everywhere that is commonly or utterly reported. A.T. Robertson says it means literally or wholly or altogether. That is generally everywhere as it is possible here, he suggests. So the idea is that this report is generally known, this case is generally known, and it is an accurate report. There is a case of fornication in your midst, and everyone seems to know that it's going on. Now, what was the problem? Verse 1 says that a man would be committing fornication, that he would be guilty of sexual immorality, the New King James says. Vine says that's illicit sexual intercourse. Swanson says that sexual immorality, sexual sin of a general kind that includes different kinds of behavior, many different behaviors. That is a broad term that would include premarital relationships, extramarital relationships, incest, homosexuality, and bestiality. It is a broader term than other terms. It might be used like the term adultery. Those those are used interchangeably at times. Now, the case was that a man had his father's wife. That seems unusual to us. His father, according to chapter 7, and I say, uh, assuming that chapter 7 and verse 12 is talking about the father, that there was one who suffered wrong. And that perhaps is his father. His father may still have been living, though we don't know that for sure. This would not have been his mother. It's not his father's wife. And the that it would have been his mother but perhaps his father's second wife or a subsequent wife perhaps she was much younger than the boy's mother or the man's mother perhaps even closer to the younger man's age and commenting upon why would this man marry a younger woman James P. Miller used to say it's because perhaps he preferred the smell of perfumed liniment I don't know if that's the case or not but that may be the case but he married perhaps a younger woman His son now is taking her to be his wife. That is, he he is committing sexual immorality with his father's wife, the text says. There is no evidence that she was a member of the church. Because nothing is said in this context about dealing with her. That she is not being disciplined and that she should be disciplined. No evidence that she is a Christian. But notice again verse 1, we're still describing the problem. This was a problem that was not even heard among the Gentiles. That doesn't mean it didn't happen or it didn't exist. It did happen among the Gentiles. But they did not tolerate that. Ketcher's said in the clean church, and by the way, that's old catcherside for those of you old enough to remember that name. That's old catcherside back before he became the loose and liberal man that he became later in his life. But he said in this good book called A Clean Church, it would create a thought in the minds of the people of the world that the state or the standard of morals was lower in the church than among the idolatrous heathen. He well said that. How true. This was not even heard among the Gentiles. So we have a problem at Corinth. Now here, secondly, I want us to consider the failure identified in verse 2. Verse 2 said the failure was they had not dealt with the problem properly. They had not dealt with the fornicator properly. So let's see what the text says. Beginning at verse 2, he said, are you not puffed up and have not rather mourned? These brethren are puffed up. In other words, they're filled with pride, not because of the fornication or their toleration thereof. I don't think so. But I want to suggest to you that's possible. It's very possible. It could be that someone is a prominent member or perhaps they have money or they're influential. And though they're living in adultery, though they're committing sin, we are glad they're part of us because of who they, the influence they bring or the prestige they bring. So maybe they were puffed up because this fornicator was there. Or it could be they're boasting that they're tolerant. Some churches would do that even in our own day. That while other churches wouldn't accept them, we would accept them. And they're kind of prideful of the fact we accept members that no one else would accept. Maybe that was the case, but I rather think it was in spite of the true condition of the church. They're filled with pride even though there's a problem of fornication in their midst. Now why would they be filled with pride? Perhaps spiritual gifts had something to do with that. We see evidence in chapter 1 concerning their spiritual gifts. Chapter 4 talks about them being puffed up one against the other. I see more evidence in chapter 12 that one who thought he had a gift that others didn't have, that that made them be filled with pride concerning that. Maybe that's what the pride was all about. Perhaps it had to do with some other things in the church they thought to be great. They're filled with pride in spite of the problem they have of a fornicator in their midst. The text says at verse 2, they have not rather mourned. They should have mourned and had sorrow for the sin. The word for mourning here means to grieve, to mourn and to well. And what it's describing is a grief that is a motive that should have driven the church to act upon the sin and deal with the problem of sin to bring him back. Again, I quote from a clean church that said, in view of this, we can well recognize that there are many congregations today which blatantly boast of their accomplishments, but which would be more in character if they put on sackcloth and ashes of deep grief at the sins which they are tolerated. I say amen to that. There are churches all over this country that are supposed to be non-institutional, conservative churches of Christ that are tolerating sin after sin after sin, and they boast of their accomplishments when they ought to put on sackcloth and ashes and be repenting for the things they tolerate. This church was such a church, a Corinth. But I want you to notice at verse 2, the problem was they have not taken him away. The mourning and the sorrow should have led to the action of taking him away. That means to withdraw from him. Now how that's to be done and what's to be done, the details of that are given in the section that we're turning to now. And so I see the problem, I see the failure. Thirdly, let's look at the instruction and that takes us from verse three to the end of the chapter. And then we have more to say beyond that as we go to chapter two and chapter seven of 2 Corinthians. What instructions are given here? Well, the instruction was to put away that fornicator from among you. Let's see what the instructions included. Let's start at verse three. Paul simply states that there was no question about what should be done. This was not a case that Paul said, you know what we need to do? We need to sit down and deliberate. Maybe I should meet with your elders. Maybe we need to have a conference. Let's sit down and kind of think this thing through. What should we do? How do we handle this? He said it's already been decided what should be done. Look at verse 3. He said, for I indeed as absent in the body but present in the spirit have already judged as though I were present concerning him that has done this deed. I've already concluded what is obvious. The conclusion about what should be done was decided as if he were present in the church there then. What Paul is saying is the facts cannot be denied. Here is a man, the actual report is, the accurate report and the common report is he has his father's wife and that needs to be dealt with. And isn't it interesting that at verse 4 he said, in the name of the Lord Jesus when you're gathered together... The authority of Christ tells us what's to do. We take our direction from our head, who is Jesus. And when Christ endorses our action, it's only because we're doing the things that are in harmony with his will. In the name of the Lord Jesus. What I'm suggesting to you is to ignore and to rebel, is to reject the authority of Christ. And if this church at Corinth rejects this message, which they did not, but had they rejected that, they would have rejected the authority of Christ. But further, their instructions in verse 4 was, this was instructions for the whole church. When you were gathered together along with my spirit with the power of the Lord Jesus. Here is something that was the action not only on the part of the elders, nor only on a small part of the church, but when you're gathered together, this was action for the whole church. Something that took place in the assembly as we mentioned last evening. When you're gathered together. We are misstating when we say, you know what? The elders got up Sunday and the elders withdrew from brother so-and-so. Well, the elders may have led in that, but the church here withdrew from brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so. So So why does it involve the whole church action? It is, as we mentioned last evening, so that the rest may fear, as we saw in Acts chapter 5 in verse 11, or 1 Timothy 5 in 19 and 20. The whole church is involved so that all can make efforts to restore. See, when brother so-and-so So goes astray, not only are the elders to make a plea to him, to restore him, every one of us who are Christians are to make a plea for their restoration. And furthermore, the purpose would involve so that all may know whom they may not have company with, whom they may not socialize with. They may not be well aware that brother so-and-so has gone so far into his sin, and now when the announcement is made, we are withdrawing from brother X because of his sin. Now I know the one I'm not to continue to have social relationship with. Now let's turn to verses 5 to 8. Are you seeing how the the instructions are developing? Paul's saying it's obvious what ought to be done. The authority of Christ tells us what ought to be done. The whole church needs to be involved in the matter. Now the purpose for putting him away is his follows. He mentions two things. First, the saving of the erring. Look at verse 5. Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. You deliver him to Satan. That alludes to the fact that there are two realms. There's the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. And this act of taking disciplinary action upon him is identifying the realm in which the person has chosen to live. Not what we chose for them. They made that choice for themselves. So you deliver him unto Satan. That's the realm in which he has chosen to live, living a life in service unto Satan. Let them live that life and face the consequence, but let them not be identified with God's people at the same time. Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. What does that mean? That the desires of the flesh might be destroyed. That the sin might cease. Deliver him to Satan for that purpose. That would be parallel with what we saw last evening in 1 Timothy chapter 1. That his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So Paul, what are you telling us? You're telling us that that this is by the authority of Christ. I got that and the whole church is to be involved. What are we trying to accomplish? You're trying to save his soul and cause him to cease his sin. That's what you're trying to do. That's what this is all about. But then secondly, beginning at verse 6 through verse 8, is maintaining the purity of the church. Now notice that to ignore that is to leave a leavening influence. Look at verse 6. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavened the whole lot? What this text is telling us is dough with a small amount of leaven results in the whole lot being leavened, And thus their glorying, their puffed up of verse 2 is not good. This whole idea of you being puffed up in spite of the condition, it's not good. Your glorying is not good at all. You don't need to be glorying at all because you're leaving an leavening influence within the church. Willis said in his comments on this point in this text, not infrequently does a group become so concerned about one issue that they measure faithfulness solely on the basis of that one issue. Faithfulness to such, uh, to such persons is not measured by the kind of life one is living, but by where a person stands on that particular issue. How true. Maybe that's what was going on at Corinth. Anytime a group tolerates an evil, it's moral standards are lowered. And that was happening here in the church at Corinth. And so furthermore, look at verse 7. The text says, here's what you do. Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. This is part of the instructions. It's alluding to Exodus 12. At the feast of the Passover, they were to put all leaven from their house for seven days. You remember. You remember. So likewise, in parallel to that, the sin and the sinner, the leavening influence, was to be removed last. it corrupt the whole lump, the whole church. Therefore, purge out the old leaven. Since, notice, notice verse 7, since you are unleavened. What does that mean? Since they made the claim in the profession of purity. You claim to be the people of God. You make the claim of purity. You claim to be unleavened. And since you make that claim, then you purge out that leaven. Purge out that sin that is among you. For Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. He said, I'm getting lost. What's that got to do with this? I know Christ was sacrificed, but what's that got to do with this? In Exodus 12, take note of this the leaven was removed prior to the sacrifice. Christ has already been sacrificed so the point is you're running late in getting the leaven out. You're running behind on that. The sacrifice has already been made. You need to get that leaven out now. And don't wait any longer. Purge out that old leaven. Maintain the purity of the church. Now look at verse 8. Therefore let us keep the feast with not with the old leaven. Nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. What on earth is that about? Well, he said, "You keep the feast not without compromises." The idea, not with the malice, not with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with sincerity and truth. Let's get an idea of what that may be about. I think take the word malice to refer more to the attitude and wickedness to the deed. Thayer says that malice, translated malice, means wickedness, depravity, wickedness that is not ashamed to break the laws. Describes an attitude, doesn't it? A wickedness, an attitude that says, I'm not afraid, I'm not ashamed, I'm not bothered at all to break the laws of God. That leads to this wickedness which refers to a state of being wicked or evil as opposed to God and divine truth. Let us not attempt to serve God with this attitude that I'm not afraid to violate God's laws, and then I do violate God's laws, like they were doing at Corinth, but do it with sincerity and truth, again, an attitude and a deed. Strong says that this word for sincerity means judged by sunlight and tested as genuine. Therefore, it has to do with being genuine and sincere before God. And the idea of truth is, the Greek idea is of truth Uh, The idea is truth out in the open, so nothing there is to hide. So live your life in sincerity before God and live in such a way you have nothing to hide before God. Let there be no compromise at all. But then notice verses 9 through 11. Part of the instruction of dealing with him was not to keep company with him. Now look at verses 9 and 10. He said, I wrote to you in my epistle, that is a previous epistle to this one, not to keep company with sexually immoral people. He'd said that in a previous letter not to do that, but that did not mean that, they, that he was saying, don't associate with those of the world who may be fornicators. For he said, if that's the case, you would need to go completely out of the world. I want to tell you, that's a sad commentary on society. Paul is saying, if I'm telling you that, it, that if, if I was saying you associate at all with people who are sexually immoral, you just have to go out of the world because you're just not going to find a world where there's no sexually immoral people. It's a sad commentary. But now look at verse 11. He said, do not company with a brother that is in sin. Have no company with him and then some sins are enumerated in verse 11b that we talked about last evening. Those are rep- of all sins. There's some things that are not mentioned there. You say, well, this is an exhaustive list and if that sin is not there, we can't withdraw from. Do you see a liar mentioned there? Could we withdraw from someone who's lying? What about a murderer? Could we withdraw from a murderer? It's not mentioned there. So that list is representative of all sins. But the text says, and we're going to say more about that in a moment, not even to eat with him. I'm just listing the instructions. We'll explain them a little more later. But now let's get verses 12 and 13. We're trying to get the gist of the instructions found in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He said, judge those within the church. Now look at verse 12. He said, we can and we must judge those within. For what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those that are on the inside? In other words, God judges those on the outside and we are told to judge those on the inside. Then the conclusion is, look at verse 13, put away that wicked person. Borrowing language from Deuteronomy 24 and in verse 7. Perhaps some parallel expressions could be found in the context, like take him away from among you, or deliver such a one to Satan, or purge out the old it or do not keep company with him, or not even to eat with him. That is, you're to put him away and not even eat with him. We'll say more about that in this next section. Now, I know what the problem was at Corinth. And I know the failure at Corinth, and I know the instructions that they were given. Now, let's go back and focus on something we often misunderstand. Let's talk about the meaning of company. What does that mean? Look at verse 11. The text says, but now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral, and then lists some more along the line. What does mean? That mean, not to keep company. Here's some translations that may help us. Several translations, like King James, American Standard, the Modern English Version, New King James, Young's Literal, use this word company. Other translations, like the English Standard, New American Standard, Revised Standard, N E T and I V and New Century. And the footnote in the New King James uses the word associate. That helps us a little bit. The Living Bible and Darby's translation is a little more literal that says not to mix with. That's more of a literal translation of that, not to mix with, to associate, to company, to mix with. Let's define the word. Let's let lexicographers tell us what that word means. Strong says it means to mix up together, to associate with. Literally, it means to mix up together with. It's a description of socializing. There says it means to mix up together. So when we're socializing, we're mixing, mixing and mingling, and we're mixing together. Furthermore, Vincent, M.R. Vincent, said the word is a compound word uh, with the word together and up and down among and to mingle. So you mingle up and down among together. Therefore, not only a cultural intercourse, So it talks about a close relationship we have where we're mingling with people is the idea. Linsky, as a commentator, said it means to mix yourselves up with. Vine goes on to say that it means to mix up with signifies to have or keep company with, to mix and to mingle with others as we socialize with them. Now, I want to suggest to you as Willis suggested that church discipline, listen to this carefully, it's not true because he said it, he captured the thought of the text. The church discipline is social ostracism. Therefore it is effective or ineffective in direct proportion to how well the members personally disassociate themselves from the sinner. I say amen to that. That what's going on at Corinth, he said, you are not to keep company with him. Do not associate with him. This is designed to bring him to repentance. Second Thessalonians says the same thing, that he might be ashamed. So our church discipline is effective or ineffective in direct proportion to how well we carry out that part of the command. We sometimes say, you know what, church discipline doesn't work. And one of the reasons it doesn't work is A sizable group of the people are continuing to socialize with those with whom we have withdrawn ourselves. And then we scratch our heads and wonder, why isn't it working? Because we're not practicing what the Lord said. Let's talk about this expression, not even to eat. This is not referring to the Lord's Supper, as some have supposed. How could the faithful, let me reason why that's not the case, how could the faithful keep the unfaithful from partaking of the Lord's Supper? And furthermore, this association that is forbidden is permitted with the world, verse 10. Is that the Lord's Supper? You eat the Lord's Supper with the world, but you can't with a wayward brother? That doesn't make sense, does it? You see, the eating is part of keeping company, and therefore it is a common meal. It's part of socializing. But listen to this very carefully. It's just one part of keeping company. Quite often I hear people quote this text and Practice this text as if it read like this. Do not keep company with someone. And what I mean by that is don't eat anything with them. You can do everything else, but just don't eat. That's how they interpret the text. And so their idea is this, that the idea of company is only involved eating. So what they're thinking is, here's what I can do. Now, ignore the chart. I'm coming back to that. Listen to me for a moment. There are people who, there are women, maybe go shopping with one another. They've been withdrawn from, but let's go shopping all day long. And then let's go to a movie and let's have a good time. And then when someone says, let's stop and get a meal, oh, no, I can't eat with you. If we did, you have to eat at that table and I'll eat another. I can't eat with you because you've been disciplined. But we socialize all day long. Here are two men, they're out golfing. One has been withdrawn from, they can golf all day long. But when they come by the ninth hole and go to the clubhouse for a hot uh, hot dog, oh, no, I can't do that with you because I, I can't eat with you. That's not what the text is saying. That's not what the text is saying. Company involves more than just eating. When we visit and we socialize, when we shop together, we play games together, and when we eat together, all of that's a part of keeping company. Eating is just one specific of that. So I might not be eating with them, but I might be socializing with them. Now what does he specify eating? I think he's perhaps alluding to a principle that we find in Galatians chapter 2. So what does Galatians have, two have to do with this? What I want you to see from Galatians two is that eating together shows some degree of approval. And you say, "How do you know that? How do you know that's what Galatians 2 is saying. Do you remember the case of Peter when he acted as a hypocrite and would not eat with the Gentiles? What was his point? Because of some brethren who come from James, he didn't want to leave the impression he gave his approval to the Gentiles. He knew eating with them gave some degree of approval. You say, well, Peter was wrong. Yeah, he was wrong. But here's the principle, that eating with them shows some degree of approval. That's the principle of Galatians too. To get this point, eating is just one specific of keeping company with others. Now let's go further. Finally, let's talk about the reaction to the instructions. If you haven't done a thorough study of this case at Corinth, or maybe a thorough study of 2 Corinthians. You may be wondering, I wonder how the church received that instruction. Did they ever make a change? Did they ever deal with him? Do we have any indication? Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 7 now. The church at Corinth changed and they took action. The church at Corinth changed, and they took action. Paul, the author of the letter, rejoiced to hear the report from Titus. I'm in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 now. The first letter had been sent. Titus is bringing a message back to Paul. Paul cannot wait. He is waiting Waiting and waiting. Can't wait to find out from Titus how things are going. How was the letter received? And Nevertheless, beginning at verse 6, chapter 7, verse 6, God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. Oh, we were anxious to find out how that first letter was received and we were so comforted when Titus came. Not only by his coming but also by consolation with which he comforted, uh, was comforted in you when he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so I rejoiced even more. Now you read verse 7 and see if you get the impression that Titus came back saying, you know what, that letter didn't go too well. It went over like a lead balloon, I won't tell you. They didn't like it. They rejected it. They said they don't want to ever hear from Paul again. Is that their reaction? Or did they embrace the letter and make a change? Read verse 7 again. The report was not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you when he told us of your earnest desire and your mourning and your zeal for me. The letter went quite well. The first letter was a hard, severe letter according to chapter 10 and verse 10. And Titus reports that that letter was received well. They took it well. So the first Corinthian letter produced repentance beginning at verse 8 now. For if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret, for I perceived that the same epistle made you sorrow, though only for a while. That letter produced repentance. Yes, it caused sorrow, but that sorrow led to repentance, and that repentance led to some change that we read about it, verse 11. We don't have time to explore all the details of verse 11, but he said, what, what diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication... Well, great results came from that letter. So we were glad to hear the report that came from Titus. Now, don't miss the point. I'm trying to drive it from 2 Corinthians chapter 7. The church at Corinth took heed to the letter. They changed and they took action. Now, let's go to chapter 2 now, 2 Corinthians. The disciplined fornicator repented. The withdrawing of this brother, this fornicator, caused him to come to repentance, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. So we raise the question, does 2 Corinthians 2 refer to the fornicator at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 5? Does it? Most who study the text think that it is, but there is an argument made that it does not and it's based upon an assumption of a visit and a letter between 1 and 2 Corinthians. Tertullian argued that it was someone other than, he was one of the church fathers, so-called. He argued that it was someone other than this fornicator. It's based upon, that argument is based upon 2 Corinthians 2 and in verse 4 that he said, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears. And in my mind, as I read 1 Corinthians, that would seem to fit First Corinthians in my book. Tertullian and others say that doesn't fit 1 Corinthians. Linsky said this, he said they failed, speaking of those who make that argument, they failed to find the tears about which Paul speaks. They catalog the passages where Paul may have and where he could have had shed tears when he was dictating 1 Corinthians, the view that the whole letter must be dripping with tears that all the emotions of the writer must lie revealed on the surface. In fact, that his tears ought to be mentioned in the proper places where he had shed them is unwarranted. I say amen to that. What he's arguing is that those who say, well, he should have shown tears here if this was what he's talking about, we should see some emotion on the surface. That's unwarranted. Who says it has to be there on the surface? The tears are mentioned in chapter 2. And in verse 4, H.A.W. Myers said, There is no sufficient ground in the passage for the assumption of an intermediate letter. Or that there is here meant not the unchaste person but a slanderer rebuked by Paul in this intermediate letter. That's all based on an assumption. One more quote from Linsky. He said, We are now ready for the word regarding the question as to whether Paul speaks concerning the case of incest that is known in 1 Corinthians 5. Every detail of our paragraph, verses 5-11, through 11, not only corresponds with that case, but cannot be understood if that case is not referred to. 2 Corinthians 2 does not speak about the case mentioned in 1 Corinthians 5. We must invent a duplicate case, save only that the case it uh, not be a case of incest, which would otherwise have the same characteristics. The characteristics do that. The critics do that. They disregard 1 Corinthians 5 and set up a hypothetical case that fits 2 Corinthians 2 plus chapter 7, verse 12. The result has been confusing. Paul himself has made it impossible to substitute a hypothetical case. He does this in the simplest way of writing in such a manner that unless one is acquainted with the actual case, 1 Corinthians 5, one cannot understand a number of the expressions which he employs in verses 5-11. through 11. 1 Corinthians 5 is so completely the key to 2 Corinthians 2 that when the key is disregarded the door remains locked. I say amen. Now what evidence would I cite this is talking about the fornicator? Well, This is a response. Whatever he's talking about was their response to the first letter. There is no evidence of another letter in between these two or a visit between these two. And notice in verse 6, 2 Corinthians 2 and in verse 6, this punishment was inflicted by the majority. Do you remember in chapter 5 he said when you're gathered together, the whole church was to be involved. And whatever he's talking about is a specific person, not a general problem. Like there's a lot of fornication in your midst. There's a specific person. And chapter 2 talks about a specific person who's made a change and repented. It must be the fornicator at Corinth of chapter 5. But here's what I want you to see. The case of discipline worked. And when somebody asks you, can you cite a case Can you ever tell me where church discipline worked? Yes, Corinth is the place. It worked. Look at verse 6. The church did what it should. The the punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man. When they did and when they worked it, it brought about repentance. Verse 6 and 7. So that, verse 7, on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Note the tenderness with which Paul deals with the man. He doesn't identify him by name or his sin, but says, now embrace him that is, that is repented. Now it was effective, according to verse 6, because of the group action. It was inflicted by the majority, not just some, not just the elders, not just two or three, but by the majority it was inflicted and it was effective. Now beginning at verse 7, he is saying it's important now to forgive and embrace and comfort him. That's just as important. But the curry said, at any rate, the time has come for tender love, agape, to supersede tough love. They had shown tough love by discipline. Now the time has come to show tender love and embrace him and forgive him. Now, some must have misunderstood verses 10 and 11. I say some at Corinth must have misunderstood the instructions. So read with me beginning in verse 10. Now you ought to forgive. Now whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven the one for your sakes in the presence of Christ, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we're not ignorant of his devices. I take that to mean that some would not forgive and receive him back. Perhaps the wide-ranging grief finally caused this. Kaufman called that super piety. And I want to tell you that what may seem like taking a strong stand actually may be a tool of Satan. Look back at verse 11 and let's explain then. He said, lest Satan take advantage of you, for we're not ignorant of his devices. What's he talking about? He's saying, now this brother has repented, let up on the pressure, let up on the condemnation, let up on the discipline, and now embrace him and forgive him. Embrace him and forgive him. I want to tell you sometimes when someone commits a grievous sin like fornication and and cheats on his wife, that there will be some, even after he's repented, who will say to him, I can't believe you did that. I don't understand how you could do that. I don't want to be around you. I don't want to be with you. I don't even want to see you because of the grievous sin you've committed. And they think they're doing God's service and standing firm. And yet verse 11 says, you become now a tool of Satan. No, I'm taking a strong stand because I'm still hammering on his sin. I know he's repentant, but I'm still hammering at the sin because I'm so strong and so conservative I'm trying to fight the sin. Look at verse 11, he said, for we're not ignorant of his devices. That's a tool of Satan. You've become his instrument now. And What I'm suggesting to you is that forgiveness is as much a part of this discipline as the discipline within itself. So what have we seen? We're going to draw some conclusions. But let's review what we've just seen. I know that's kind of a hurried look. Some of you've got the printed material that I've written and you're following along, you've had to go through two lessons to get all this in tonight. And so I recognize we've crammed a lot in tonight. But we saw a problem at Corinth. We saw the failure at Corinth. We saw the instructions that were given. We saw what company means and we see how the letter was received. The church accepted it. They did what they were supposed to do and it brought him to repentance. What a success. Let's draw four conclusions and the lesson will be yours. Here's one of the conclusions I have to draw from this. Churches can change. And they can start withdrawing when they have not. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but if this were a Bible class and I were to ask, how many of you know of a church that, has, that you know of that is not practicing and hasn't for many years practiced discipline? I think nearly every hand would go up. We know of churches like that, don't we? And I want to tell you, there are churches that are not practicing discipline like Corinth wasn't. They can change. Church at the church at Corinth did change, and they started practicing discipline. Churches can change. I know where that's happened. I've seen the elders make public confession that we haven't done our job, and we're going to start doing it now. Here's a second conclusion. It's so simple you may miss the point. Withdrawal works. It works. Proof? Corinth. That's all we need. Here's a third conclusion. Not keeping company is an essential and effective part of discipline. Ever wonder why it doesn't work? Maybe it's because we're not carrying through with all of it. We made an announcement. We withdrew. We sent them a letter. We did all of that. But we're still socializing and scratching our heads. Why isn't it working? Not keeping company is an essential and an effective part of church discipline. And finally, receiving and forgiving the penitent is just as important as withdrawing. We rebuke, and then we withdraw, and then when they come back now, just as important as withdrawing, we must embrace and we must forgive, or we become a tool of Satan. There may be one or more present this evening who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come this evening believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and while we sing?